Hello and welcome to NFS Evolved, our deep dive into Amazon Elastic File System. My name is Duncan Lennox, I'm the Director of Product Management for Amazon EFS, and I'm joined today by my colleague Abrar Hussain from the EFS team, and we're delighted to have Dr. Ian Davis with us today from Bayer Crop Science, who a little bit later will talk about how he's using EFS in a solution for Bayer Crop Science. A little bit upfront about what we'd like to cover today. We've got a lot of material we'd like to go through with you over the next hour or so. Going to start out with a little bit of a discussion on how you can transform your applications and your organization with file storage. Then cover an overview of Amazon EFS itself. What is Amazon Elastic File System? Before we dive deep into EFS and some of its core features and capabilities. Um, we're going to talk about how customers are using EFS today, and then Ian's going to talk about how Bayer Crop Science in particular are using EFS. And we'll wrap up at the end with some best practices on how to leverage EFS, some tips on how to get started, and then hopefully we'll have some time for some of your questions as well. Before we dive into EFS, I just wanted to point out that there are a lot of great breakout sessions going on all week about our file storage services, so I highly encourage you to check them out if you can. We also have a bunch of chalk talks going on specifically about EFS, where we dive into TCO, security, performance, and a number of other topics. So hope you'll get an opportunity to participate in one of those. Before we get into talking about EFS itself, let's talk a little bit about business transformation. So earlier in the week, Kevin Miller in our storage leadership session talked a little bit about the motivations we see from our customers in coming to AWS and the cloud. And it really breaks down to three core things. Transforming your infrastructure, transforming your application architecture, and then transforming your businesses themselves. So I'm not going to go through all the great points that Kevin made, but I'd love to talk for a minute a little bit about how this transformation applies to file storage in particular. Of course, infrastructure is typically where we'll start with customers. So the move to a fully managed file system service allows you to get away from the old school approach of having to plan for capacity and performance, work with procurement, and then manage a lot of administrative overhead associated with file system storage. You can move to something that's simple, elastic, highly available, and can deliver the performance and durability that your applications need. That also allows us to offer price and performance profiles that meet the levels of any of your applications at any scale. And because privacy is such a big issue today, we want to make sure you also have the ability to protect that data, uh, meet the required compliances, and also back up your data as well. When we talk about transforming your application architectures, you've at this point moved your infrastructure to something that is just set it and forget it with a fully managed file system service. Now we can take things to the next level and look at how we can manage to transform your application workflows, leveraging the integrations with native AWS services that we've built. So that means everything from not just using EC2 computing with your file system service, but also being able to take advantage of container services like ECS and EKS, and machine learning services like SageMaker. And of course, we do all of that with also providing you the ability to manage the security of your application as well, with everything from network-level security to integration with IAM for client-level authorization, and of course, encryption in transit and at rest. 
Finally, we get to the one that's perhaps the most exciting one, which is transforming your business itself. So having leveraged the infrastructure transformation and the application architecture transformation, at this point, we want to help you move on to being able to grow your top line, improve customer satisfaction, or make material reductions in your cost savings. And that's a big part of what the AWS cloud can provide our customers today. And at the end of the day, we want to be able to remove a lot of the undifferentiated heavy lifting associated with typical on-prem file storage so that you can focus more of your time and energy on innovating for your organization and for your customers. Now, when it comes to our file system services, we think of them in two broad categories. The general purpose business application workloads, things like web serving and other content management applications, applications like CRM and ERP, and then getting into more intensive data applications like analytics and media construction as well. And then the second category are the compute-intensive workloads, those workloads that need hundreds of gigabytes a second of throughput, sub-millisecond latencies, and millions of IOPS per file system. So in 2016, we launched our cloud-native file system service, Amazon Elastic File System. And that's what we're going to spend the bulk of this session talking about. Last year at reInvent, we launched the FSX family of file system services. These are fully managed third-party file system services, um, FSX for Windows File Server for all your Windows workloads, and Amazon FSX for Lustre for those compute-intensive workloads that need those hundreds of gigabytes a second of throughput, sub-millisecond um, uh, latencies, and so forth. And there are sessions about Amazon FSX on throughout the, the conference, so I highly encourage you to check those out. But for today, let's turn our attention to Amazon Elastic File System itself. So what is EFS? Amazon EFS is our NFS-evolved, fully-managed cloud-native file system. It's built on three core pillars, cloud-native, highly reliable, and cost-optimized. What are people using EFS for today? Well, we, we designed it for a wide range of general purpose workloads. Everything from single threaded, low latency metadata intensive applications, all the way up through massively parallel scale out jobs. We built it to be cloud native. What do we mean by cloud native? Well, we focus on elasticity, scalability, and integration. Elasticity comes from the fact that when you're using Amazon EFS, you never have to provision capacity. You create a file system simply in a few clicks in our console or with a single API call, and the file system automatically grows as you add data to it and shrinks as you remove data. You pay only for the space that you're actually using. It's scalable because the performance of the file system in throughput scales automatically as you add more data to the file system itself. We have two performance modes, which we'll touch on later, depending on your application. And we also offer a provision throughput capability if you want to provision throughput separately from storage. And it's integrated. It's designed to integrate with a variety of our compute models and network architectures, as well as a bunch of our other AWS services. So shared access is a key part of any file system, and we designed Amazon EFS to enable you to access it from a variety of ways. So of course, you can access it from NFS clients in the VPC where you create the file system, 
but you can also access it from NFS clients in other VPCs in the same region using intra-region VPC peering, or even from VPCs in other regions using inter-region VPC peering. And you can also access the EFS file system from on-prem using either Amazon VPN or Amazon Direct Connect. But we also went beyond that to integrate tightly with a lot of AWS services. So of course, you can use EFS from an EC2 instance, but you can also use EFS from our container services, EKS and ECS, and also from our machine learning service, uh, Amazon SageMaker. Part of what we were trying to do with EFS is recognize that different customers are at different points on their cloud transformation journey. So whether you are at the very beginning where the majority of your workloads are still on-prem and you're just starting to think about moving them into the cloud, or you're somewhere else further along where some of them are in the cloud as lift and shift applications, you haven't modified them, you just move them directly into the AWS cloud, or indeed you're starting to take advantage of some of our cloud-native services and capabilities like containers, SageMaker, and so forth. EFS is going to be there with you today and as your journey continues as well. Our second pillar is all about reliability and being highly reliable. And that starts with us in being highly available and highly durable. There's no more important feature for a file system service or any storage service than durability. And with Amazon, you get both high EFS, you get both high availability and high durability. We'll touch on that in a moment when we talk about our multi-AZ architecture. You also get a file system that's secure, something that you can control both at the network traffic level, at the file system level with POSIX permissions. You can encrypt your data at rest and in motion. And you can also take advantage of IAM both at the uh, administration API level and now coming soon, we've announced this week at reInvent, uh, at the NFS client level as well. And we have a global footprint that's going to be available where you need us to be. We recently launched in four more regions, and we'll talk about regions in a moment. Amazon EFS is designed as a regional service or multi-AZ service. This means that when you write data to your EFS file system and your NFS client gets an acknowledgement back that that data was written, that means at that point it's already durably stored across three different availability zones. You have full access to your file system across these three AZs. So if for some reason you lost access through a single AZ, you continue to have full read-write access to the file system across the other two AZs. And we support strong consistency. So as soon as that acknowledgement is sent back to you that the data was written, that means it is available across the three AZs at that moment as well. Our durability level is designed for 11.9s. It's the same as S3's durability model. So in terms of our global footprint, we've made a lot of progress in the last year. At reInvent last year, EFS was available in 10 AWS regions, and today we're happy to say we're available in 19 AWS regions, including four that we just launched in the last few weeks. And finally, let's talk about cost optimized. We wanted to create a file system that gives people the best of both worlds. They don't have to worry about provisioning or managing aspects of their file system, and they pay only for what they're using. So we do this in a number of ways. Firstly, there are no minimum commitments or upfront fees associated with using EFS. As we've already talked about, there's no need to provision storage. The file system automatically grows and can grow to petabytes of data automatically as you put data into it. 
One of the things that's really interesting about being available in three availability zones is the ability to leverage EC2 spot instances. We often have customers that have very compute-intensive workloads that burst. Storage is usually a pretty small component of the cost that's associated with that. It tends to be more the compute storage. Because the file system is available in three availability zones within a particular region, that means you could take advantage of EC2 spot prices that might be available in any of those three AZs. And EC2 spot instances can be up to 92% cheaper than on-demand instances. And finally, uh, we added a capability at the beginning of this year called lifecycle management with a second storage class called infrequent access. And what that allows you to do is automatically save up to 92% in the cost of storage of your file system. We'll talk about IA and lifecycle management a little bit more later in the session, but essentially what it allows you to do is have your less frequently accessed data transparently and automatically moved to our infrequent access storage class which in US East 1 is 2.5 cents per gigabyte month compared to 30 cents per gigabyte month for our standard storage class and 92% cost saving on storage. And it all happens automatically and transparently to your application and users. The file does not appear to move from the directory or namespace that it's in right now, but on the back end we transition it to the infrequent access storage class. So what have we been up to since we all last got together at reInvent last year? It's been a pretty busy year for us at EFS. We've launched a lot of new capabilities and a lot of new regions. We've touched on some of these things already uh, with our regional expansion and with the launch of infrequent access. We launched infrequent access early in the year in February, and we've continued to iterate on it, adding additional capabilities to it, including new policies, and in September of this year, we lowered the price of IA storage by 44% to 2.5 cents. We've also been integrating with more AWS services like EKS and SageMaker. And we'll continue to do this. We're always listening to your feedback for what it is you'd like to see in EFS and trying to iterate as quickly as we can. This week at reInvent, we're excited to talk about three new capabilities that are coming to EFS soon. The first one is single file restore. So we launched the AWS backup service at the beginning of this year, and it's natively integrated with EFS. So you can schedule and manage automated backups of your EFS file system using the AWS backup service. A new capability coming soon is the ability to restore a single path or a single file quickly. Previously, you had to restore the entire file system, even if you just wanted one particular file. Secondly is IAM authorization for NFS clients. Customers have asked for a way uh, to have more control over how file systems are accessed. So we're integrating with the AWS IAM service at the NFS client level. This will allow you to do a number of things around resource policies and, uh, and other policies with IAM. Three of the most requested that come as part of that from users will be support for root squashing, support for making a file system read-only, and the ability to enforce encryption in transit for all connections to a file system. And then third, we're working on a number of performance enhancements. So the key one here for our general purpose file system is an increase in the number of read IOPS. So if you're using our general purpose performance mode, which we'll talk about in the deep dive, uh, you are limited today to a total of 7,000 IOPS. 
And what we've heard from customers is that a lot of the workloads are very read heavy. So we're going to increase the amount of read IOPS available 5x uh, from the current 7,000 limit to 35,000 IOPS for read operations. And that's coming soon in 2020. There's a lot more to talk about on EFS, so I'd like to hand it over to my colleague Abrar now so we can dive deep. Thank you so much, Duncan. Hello, everyone. My name is Abrar Hussain. I'm a principal product manager on Amazon EFS, and I'm very excited to do a deep dive on EFS. So thank you so much for joining us today. So we're going to start the deep dive by talking about Amazon EFS Infrequent Access, or EFSIA. The most important thing about EFSIA is that it's very simple to use. There are no changes required to your existing applications or workloads. It, basically, EFS is able to provide a single file system namespace and serves files across from the two storage devices transparently. With Amazon Infrequent Access, you can save up to 92% when compared to the standard storage class of EFS. And the lifecycle management is used automatically to transfer infrequently accessed files from the standard storage class to the infrequent access storage class. So let's talk a little bit more about how does it actually work. Uh, so from the EFS console on any existing file systems, you can enable the lifecycle management. And when you enable lifecycle management, you get to choose a lifecycle policy. Now this lifecycle policy could be set to 90 days, 60 days, 30 days, 14 days, or very recently announced seven days. Now based on the lifecycle policy, infrequent access will automatically move files from standard storage class to the infrequent storage class and saving you 92%. Now let's talk a little bit more about the performance modes that we previously discussed. Amazon EFS has two different performance modes that you choose when you create your file system. The default performance mode is the general purpose performance mode. And we recommend this performance mode for a majority of customer workloads. As you test your applications on Amazon EFS, we recommend that you start with the general purpose performance mode. The other performance mode is the max IO performance mode. This is intended for scale out workloads. So let's do a comparison of these two performance modes and figure out which performance mode should be used at what point. So let's start with what it's for. So the general purpose performance mode is exactly for that general purpose. And it's also used for latency sensitive applications. The max IO performance is best. The max IO performance mode is best for scale out data heavy applications. Now these performance mode comes with their advantages and some trade-offs. Let's talk about that a little bit. The general purpose performance mode is good for low latencies for file operations, but it does come at a 7,000 IOPS limit. But as Duncan talked about earlier, we are going to be increasing the read IOPS up to 5x, and that's coming soon. Now, for max IO performance mode, you have virtually unlimited ability to scale out your throughput and IOPS, but it does come at slightly higher metadata latencies when compared to the general purpose performance mode. So to wrap up the discussion, the general purpose performance mode is the best choice for most workloads. 
The max I.O. performance mode, you should consider that for large, data-heavy, scale-out applications. Amazon EFS also offers two different types of throughput modes. The first is the bursting throughput mode. This is the default throughput mode and is recommended for a majority of workloads. With bursting throughput mode, your throughput scales with the size of the file system. You're able to drive 50 megabytes per second per terabyte of data stored in the file system. Additionally, you're able to burst to double that and drive 100 megabytes per second per terabyte of data stored. The second is provision throughput. With provision throughput, you get to set the throughput of the file system independently of the amount of storage in the file system. Let's do a com comparison of the two throughput modes. We'll start, with, we'll start with the bursting throughput mode. It is used for workloads with variable throughput demands, whereas the provision throughput mode is recommended for higher consistent throughput workloads. They come with their own advantages and trade-offs. Let's talk about that. The bursting throughput mode is good for automatic scaling. It scales automatically with the size of your file system, but it is fixed, also fixed to the size of your file system. The provision throughput mode, you get to define the provision throughput amount, but there is a separate charge for it in addition to the storage charge. So just to summarize this, the bursting, throughput mode, the bursting throughput mode is best choice for most workloads. The provision throughput is used for higher throughput to storage ratio workloads. For example, if you're ingesting large amounts of data into the file system, that would be the recommended throughput mode to choose. Let's talk a little bit more about provision throughput, right? So first we said it is independent. You can provision throughput independent of the amount of data stored in the file system. You can increase the provision throughput amount as often as you, you like, but you can only decrease the provision throughput amount once every 24 plus hours. You can also change the provision throughput modes once every 24 plus hours. Now, there's different pricing structure when it comes to the throughput modes. Let's talk about the pricing structure of the bursting throughput first. It uses a single pricing dimension. Essentially, you only pay for the amount of data you store in the file system, which is 30 cents per gigabyte of storage. Now, with the provision throughput mode, there are two pricing dimensions. The first is the storage price, and we just discussed that. The second is the actual throughput price. This is the amount of throughput that you provision. You're charged for the throughput that you provision that is above the 50 kilobytes per second per gigabyte of data stored. You pay at $6 per megabyte per second per month for only the provision throughput amount that's above the throughput that's already included in the storage price. Let's talk a little bit about security and compliance. EFS has many security capabilities today, and that's enabled us to meet the requirements for a wide variety of compliance standards. First, you can control network traffic using Amazon VPC security groups and network ACLs. You can control file and directory access using Linux or Unix standard POSIX permissions. Then you can use AWS identity and access management to control administrative API access. You can control who can create a file system or who can modify a specific file system.
You can encrypt data as REST with keys managed by AWS KMS, or you can also encrypt data in transit by using the industry standard TLS 1.2. Amazon EFS is HIPAA-eligible, GDPR, PCI, SOC, and ISO-compliant, and it's FedRAMP authorized. Let's talk a little bit more about the IAM authorization for infrequent, uh, for the IAM authorization for NFS clients, which is coming soon. So today, using the IAM identity policies, you can, con you can control what EFS administrative APIs a user has access to. Now, taking that to the next level, IAM authorization for NFS clients allow customers to manage NFS client access to the EFS file system. So it is essentially adding an extra layer of security on the top of existing network-based controls that we have. With this, we're able to provide often requested security features such as root squashing, read-only access, and the ability to enforce CLS. So with IAM authorization for NFS clients, we're adding three actions that you can use to control NFS client access to your file systems. The first action is client mount. With this, you can control and mount file systems as read-only. The second action is client write, which is the permission to read and write. The third action is client root access, which is the permission to read, write as a root user. Now for those times where you need more granular policies, we're adding file system resource policies. Now these policies, it is easy to specify what exact users have read, write, or root access to a particular file system. So let's continue our journey on the deep dive on Amazon EFS and take it to the next level and talk about integration of Amazon EFS with other AWS services and modern computing platforms. To be agile and to innovate at the fast pace are some of the many advantages of moving to AWS, of migrating to AWS. And the integration that Amazon EFS offers with other services will help you do exactly that. So let's take a look at what other services Amazon EFS integrates with today. As we highlighted in the beginning of the session, in addition to providing shared access across thousands of EC2 clients, Amazon EFS is highly integrated with other AWS services, including modern computing models like Amazon ECS and Amazon EKS, so that you can attach EFS as a shared storage to containers. And coming soon, you can also connect ESS, EFS to AWS Forget containers. You can also use EFS with Amazon SageMaker notebooks as data sources for training machine learning models. We're going to cover some of these integrations in a bit more detail now. So let's start with what we did just two months ago. In October 2019, we launched the integration of Amazon EFS with the Amazon EC2 Launch Wizard. Now you can use the Amazon EC2 Launch Wizard to directly mount file systems to your instances. You can choose from an existing file system, or you can create a brand new file system right within the instance, uh, right within the wizard. Now let's talk about container high availability use case. How can we use Amazon EFS to deliver container high availability? There are many applications out there, whether open source, commercial, or homegrown, that need reliable storage to be highly available themselves. 
these applications save user data and application state to reliable storage like Amazon EFS so that if the application crashes or if the underlying hardware fails, the new instance can pick up from where it left off. A few examples include Jupyter that needs to save uh, user notebook files or Jira that needs to save the attachments that we upload or Jenkins that is storing job data and artifacts. So being able to connect EFS storage to containers in AWS means that you can now put all of these applications in containers, saving you cost and making your operations very simple. Plus, since EFS durably stores data across three availability zones, you can follow AWS best practices and have your active and standby application instances. Let's talk a little bit about how Amazon EFS can be used for shared storage of scale-out apps use case. Many applications increase their overall performance by scaling out lots of parallel instances and need shared storage like Amazon EFS that applications are consistent so that those applications are consistent in what they serve. As is the case with web service and content management systems like WordPress and Drupal. Or in the case of machine learning, having shared storage means that you can either train models by spreading the load across multiple instances, or multiple models can be trained in parallel by using the same data. Now, Container Frameworks offers enormous value for these type of applications because it makes it simple to scale out in just seconds. And if you use the AW, uh, Amazon EFS high availability and durability architecture, you can deliver the same amount of durability for your scale-out applications. Another integration is AWS Backup that was launched last year. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So Amazon EFS uses a distributed architecture with multiple availability zones. It is highly available and durable, but you can add an extra layer of protection by using AWS Backup to backup and restore Amazon EFS. Amazon back, uh, AWS Backup provides automatic backup scheduling and retention per user-defined policies. It offers two backup storage classes, the warm storage class and the cold storage class with an ability to lifecycle from warm to cold. Now, as we just said, coming soon, we will be introducing the ability to do single file restores from your AWS backups of EFS file systems. So instead of recovering the entire file system, for faster recovery time objective, you can select the files that you need and recover. Now, you might be wondering, Amazon EFS is highly integrated, but how do I get my on-premises, NAS resources, NFS file servers to Amazon EFS. We have various tools for that, but the tool that I would like to highlight today is AWS DataSync. To migrate your on-premises NFS file servers to Amazon EFS, you can use AWS DataSync. AWS DataSync is an online data transfer service that simplifies, automates, and accelerates copying data between on-premises NFS servers and AWS storage services. This includes Amazon EFS and uh, S3. It is fast, simple, and secure. It is actually 10 times faster than open source tools. It does automatic integrity checks, and it uses TLS version 1.2 for security for data and transit. Now, we have published a white paper on this, and we will be sharing a link to that white paper at the end of the session. 
So I want to talk a little bit about the actual use cases of Amazon EFS. Now, as Duncan mentioned previously, we design Amazon EFS to serve a vast majority of file-based workloads, covering a wide spectrum of performance needs. This, the, the spectrum of performance runs from single-threaded latency-sensitive workloads to highly parallelized scale-out jobs, those workloads that require the highest possible throughput. So when it comes to customers, we have tens and thousands of customers that use Amazon EFS for a wide spectrum of use cases. Now let's take the container storage use case for example. T-Mobile can easily scale up to hundreds of nodes in Kubernetes. But before EFS, it took them weeks to deploy storage and they always had to over-provision. So with EFS, they were able to reduce uh, their cost up to 70%. The other important use case is web service, uh, web serving and content management. Companies like Thomson Reuters were able to scale their delivery of content at scale by using Amazon EFS. Another important use case is database backups. Companies like JD Power and Sybase really like Amazon EFS for its elasticity and scalability. The other use case I want to highlight is big data and analytics. Big data and analytics is an important use case of Amazon EFS, but instead of me talking about that use case, I would love to invite Dr. Ian Davis from Bear Crop Science to walk us through the transformation journey and talk to us about how do they use Amazon EFS. Great. Thank, Thank you, Abrar. Yeah, I appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you. All right, so I'm Ian Davis, and I'm here representing the biotech R&D portion of Bear Crop Science. Um, I'm, Abraj asked me to tell you a little bit about our cloud transformation journey, and in particular about the role that EFS has played for us in that journey. Um, so Bear, as a company, is more than just aspirin. Um, we are a global life sciences company, about 100,000 people. And in addition to those consumer health products that you know and love, we also have a pharmaceuticals division and an agriculture division. And in the agricultural world, we're actually facing some very daunting challenges. So over the next 30 years or so, uh, it's expected that the population of the planet's gonna grow by more than two billion people. And the demand for protein and thus for animal feed for those people is gonna grow even faster. Um, now, climate change is not going to do us any favors in this, and there is no more farmland to be had. And so agriculture um, needs to become uh, increasingly efficient. Um, and at the same time, we need to be careful to preserve and improve the state of the natural environment while we're doing that. And so like the rest of us, farmers are going to look for new technological innovation to help them keep up with those challenges. And I, I suspect some of you will be surprised to hear uh, that agriculture is very high-tech these days. Everything from predictive models for disease and pest outbreaks to a lot of computer vision applications on drone imagery, aerial drone imagery, um, and all the tractors are self-driving at this point. Um, it also takes a lot of technology, though, to develop the products uh, that we offer to our farmer customers, whether those are seeds or traits or chemistry. And in biotech in particular, we use genomics very heavily. Um, you heard a little bit about that in Monday night's keynote. Um, and so in crop science, we're using genomics to do things like study the crop microbiome. Um, and that is the, the ecosystem 
of uh, microbes that are associated with the crop itself and with the soil around it. We're also using genomics to enable uh, precision-controlled editing of crop genes. And we're even using genomics to speed up traditional plant breeding, uh, because genomics can inform us about which parents to cross with each other and which offspring to propagate. Um, and that can actually take years off of our time to market. Now, genomics is a really fun space to be in. Uh, from a computing point of view. It's compute intensive, it's memory intensive, and relevant to EFS, it is very storage intensive. Uh, and a big part of the reason for that is that um, the key technology behind genomics, which is DNA sequencing, has been growing uh, at a far faster rate than even Moore's law over the last dozen years. And so this graph here is on a logarithmic scale. And from 2008 to 2012, um, in those four years, the sequencing output per dollar grew 10,000-fold. So that's 1,000-fold faster than we would expect compute to grow in that time. And because of that, we actually have petabytes now of DNA sequence that we need to store and analyze. And that's where elastic uh, data storage systems, like S3 and EFS, look really attractive for us. Um, so our cloud transformation story um, starts back in 2015, and at that time we did all of our research computing on a traditional in-house HPC cluster, um, had about a petabyte of shared storage exposed over NFS, and this was a really familiar and comfortable environment for our scientists, but every couple of months there would be an email that went around that said, the disk is full. Everybody clean up, right? And somebody would raise their hand and say, sorry, you know, that was me. Had a big job. It'll be done in a couple of days. Um, but that would really seriously impact our productivity. Um, and then in 2015, we made a decision as an entire organization that we were going to move all of our compute to the cloud. And so we embarked on a pretty rapid journey to transform the architecture of our research computing. Now, on the compute side, we migrated everything to containers. And um, my, myself and my colleagues, we trained as scientists, not as software engineers, and so there's actually a, a pretty steep learning curve for this. Uh, but we saw a lot of benefit from managing the dependencies of scientific software that's often uh, quite finicky. We would like to have run this on batch, on AWS batch. However, this was before batch, and so we built a similar kind of system using ECS and SQSQs, and so that's what we did with compute. But storage was harder in some ways, and that's because really cloud-native storage like S3 looks very different from a traditional POSIX file system. And you can see from the examples up on these slides that standard genomics tools are very much in the Unix tradition, and they have strong expectations about where they're going to find their inputs and their outputs, and they, um, in many cases, need random access to a large shared reference file that's used as an index. Um, and these tools are the output of the global scientific community. And so uh, it is not feasible for us to rewrite these to work with a different file system. But EFS is just a drop-in replacement for the systems uh, that we're used to and that these tools work with. 
Now today, all of our genomics workloads share a single EFS volume. It's about 100 terabytes. Um, and we use it for inputs, for outputs, for intermediate files, for log files, you name it, it goes on EFS. And because we're doing science, things tend to fail in creative and unexpected ways. Um, and if you're a scientist, like I am, the prospect of debugging something that's running on a remote server inside a container where you know, maybe I don't even have permissions, uh, that's pretty challenging. But because it's all written, written to EFS, we can mount that file system from our ECS compute clusters, and we can also mount it from the interactive nodes that our scientists are logged into. And so they can see right there in the file system the progress of those jobs, what's going on in the logs, um, and it's a very familiar and comfortable paradigm for them to work with this. And so that's really what we get out of EFS is a consistent view of our data across the disparate computing resources that we're using in AWS. Now, the vast majority of our data is not in EFS. Most of it is in S3. We only use EFS for our currently active workloads. But even so, um, the storage costs for EFS actually dominate our, our storage costs. Um, and the reason for that is that scientists are sort of slow to archive these jobs off of EFS onto S3 because you know, just in case they discover something that needs to be redone or they got busy and they forgot, we're, we're all human. Um, and that's where EFS infrequent access has been a really huge win for us. It has cut our EFS bill by a little over 60% since we implemented it, and it has been absolutely invisible to our users, uh, which is really pretty cool. You can see on the graph here, we started in April with the implementation. In May, we copied everything to a new volume that supported infrequent access. Um, and then over June and July, as we clean up and those savings kick in, the cost really comes down. So um, scientific workloads are pretty spiky, right? They'll be really busy today and quiet tomorrow. We'll do a lot this month, not much next month. Um, and because of that, we sometimes end up hitting those limits on EFS, and we abuse the system pretty badly, but it holds up well. Um, and the great thing for us is that it's elastic. So since we moved to the cloud, we have never had this problem where the disk is full. Um, and in fact, as I was putting these slides together, one of the guys on my team added 70 terabytes to this volume over about a day or two, and nothing bad happened. It was great. I, in fact, I probably would not have known that it happened if he hadn't told me. Um, and all I said was, that's a lot of data. Make sure you clean it up when you're done. Um, and that was really it. And I think the promise of the cloud for science has been um, more time to focus on the science, less time on the undifferentiated heavy lifting of worrying about your infrastructure. Um, and on this promise, you know, EFS has really delivered for us very nicely. And so with that, I will uh, turn it back over to Duncan to wrap up, and thank you all for, uh, for listening. Duncan, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ian. It's always great to hear from a live customer how they're using EFS to transform their business. 
So we've covered a lot of things today, and we wanted to kind of leave you with some takeaways for next steps. Um, so we'll start maybe just talking a little bit about best practices, so things you can do as you get started with EFS to get the most out of the service. Uh, so the first thing we recommend to people is test in general purpose mode. As you've seen, we have these two different performance modes, GP and Max IO, but we recommend that most customers start by testing in GP mode and only go to Max IO if they discover they need greater IOPS, for example, than they can get from GP mode for their application. Next thing to talk about is throughput modes. And again, there we recommend that people start with bursting throughput mode. This is the throughput mode where your throughput scales automatically based on the size of your file system, allowing you to get 50 uh, megabytes per second per terabyte of data and burst to twice that, 100 megabytes a second per terabyte of data stored. Uh, you can always add the provision throughput capability at any time if you discover you want independent control of your throughput from your storage. We particularly recommend you consider PT if you're going to be ingesting large amounts of data. So we're often working with customers where they're migrating a large on-prem NAS file or workload, moving that into AWS. Abrar talked about using the AWS data sync technology to help you manage that migration. And if you're going to be migrating more than about two terabytes of data, we recommend that you turn on provision throughput so that you can accelerate the actual migration. You can turn it off again once you're done if your live application doesn't actually need that much throughput. We've optimized uh, NFS and EFS to work with modern Linux kernels. So we recommend that you're working with at least a 4.3 or later Linux kernel. We have seen bugs in the NFS client and in the kernel of earlier versions. Um, so we recommend 4.3 or newer. And we actually have an open source application called the EFS Mount Helper. You can find it on GitHub. It's linked from our website, and we'll give you those links at the end. Uh, the EFS Mount Helper makes it super easy for you to mount an EFS file system using our recommended configuration. So uh, that includes making it really easy to set up encryption in transit as part of your file system connection as well. Speaking of configurations and talking about things that you can do at the application level, uh, EFS is designed for massive parallel scale-out uh, of your file system needs. So we recommend that people use larger I.O. sizes so that they can get greater aggregate I.O. throughput. Similarly, you can take advantage of our parallel architecture by using multiple threads. Uh, EFS is able to scale out throughput linearly, so the more threads you can use, the more throughput you're going to be able to drive through your file system. And of course, the same is true of using multiple instances. You can throw thousands of EC2 clients at a single EFS file system, and again, throughput will scale out across all your EC2 instances. And then the last one is architecting around multiple directories. As is often the case with many file systems, the more you can spread out your workload across multiple directories, the more you'll be able to take advantage of that parallel scale-out capability that EFS offers and staying away from inode contention. And then a few more new ones just to wrap it up. 
We certainly recommend that you enable lifecycle management. It's a single click uh, in the console or a single API call. Uh, and as we heard both from Abrar and then from Ian with the Bayer Crop Science example, it's completely automatic and transparent to your application and users. Uh, there are some latency differences on first byte reads and writes for data that's stored uh, in the infrequent access storage class. So if you have an application that's particularly latency sensitive, you may want to test it. But for the vast majority of applications, we find that it's completely invisible to the application, but not invisible to you in a 92% reduction in your storage costs for those files that are in IA. Uh, we recommend, of course, that you enable encryption in transit and at rest, particularly for your sensitive workloads. You can use uh, customer-managed keys for your data that's encrypted uh, at rest. And then, of course, we recommend that you create a backup. So although EFS is a highly durable file system designed for 11 nines of durability, users will sometimes go and do things like delete files they didn't mean to delete. So leveraging the AWS backup capability allows you to have a backup of your EFS file system. And as we touched on, AWS backup supports both a warm and a cold tier, and the cold tier is one cent per gigabyte month. And with our new coming soon capability that allows you to restore a single file or a single path easily, it's a quick and easy way to retrieve that file that that user went and deleted by mistake. And then finally, we provide a number of ways of monitoring your file system through CloudWatch metrics so you can see what your throughput utilization is like. If you're using our bursting throughput mode, you'll be able to see your burst credit status. And if you're using a general purpose performance mode, you'll be able to see if you're hitting the percent I.O. limit associated with general purpose. So we hope you've learned a lot today and that you're excited to get started and try out EFS. It could not be easier. If you don't already have an AWS account, you can sign up for one in about 15 seconds on the AWS website. And then you can go and create an EFS file system in a few clicks in the console or a single API call. EFS participates in the AWS free tier. So if you're a new AWS customer, you get five gigabytes of storage uh, per month for 12 months so that you can experiment with EFS. On our website, we also have a 10-minute tutorial, uh, and then we also have step-by-step walkthroughs that walk you through configuring and using EFS in a number of scenarios. So you can get started just by going to aws.amazon.com EFS, and links to all these things are there as well, whether it's getting started um, or the white paper that Abrar mentioned earlier, which talks in more detail about how you can load, store, and protect data using EFS in conjunction with AWS DataSync and AWS Backup. We also have a performance tutorial on GitHub that gives you a bunch of working examples that you can try out for how you can get that massive parallel scale out with EFS and bring that to your applications as well. So we hope you've enjoyed the conversation today. We have a few minutes left. I'm gonna invite Abrar and Ian to come back up on stage and we'd be delighted to take any questions you might have.